Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? There's never been that goal of like, oh, if we fail here, I don't have some cushion. Which, to me, makes this a lot more fun. Like, it wouldn't be as fun if you failed to know like, oh, I just go live in my parents' million-dollar mansion. Like, yeah, that's yeah. not as cool. Yeah. So it is very much about taking risk and, and essentially, in a way, it, it's like a massive poker game where all your chips are on the table at all times. And like, sometimes you're bluffing and sometimes you got a great hand and you just got to figure out the right play. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week's pod is very much one of those only in Silicon Valley type stories. So on the pod, we have Matt Gulich. He is the founder of a startup called Astroforge. And you might be wondering what what a company called Astroforge be doing. Well, asteroid mining, of course. Yes, you heard that right. So Matt is one of a whole new generation of space entrepreneurs who are riding the wave unleashed by Elon Musk and others, where like all of a sudden there are launches into low Earth orbit practically every day. Launch costs have plummeted. And the result is that the way has really been open for a wave of startups, a new generation of startups, to start doing interesting stuff in outer space that you can't really do here on Earth. And it kind of, all of a sudden, some of these ideas can start to make sense if they work, which is a big if in most cases. That's the idea. And so why mining asteroids? Well, Matt will fill you in, but the short version, the world needs platinum, which is extremely expensive, very hard to mine and that we use it in everything from electric cars, modern electronics, it's very much in demand, obviously jewelry as well. And there is apparently a ton of platinum on asteroids, and they're also extremely rich in this metal, like hundreds or even thousands of times more concentrated on these asteroids that we already know about than anywhere you can find here on the third rock from the sun. So if now we have effectively a super highway to space, 
why not start hitching rides and sending some kind of mining equipment to land on some of these asteroids, chip away at the good stuff, bring it back down to Earth, and sell and use them accordingly. That's the big idea here. Um, and as you will soon hear, it is not nearly as insane as it sounds. And Matt has also taken, uh, personally, a very topsy-turvy route to get here. He worked on space uh, before, then he went to scooters, he was working on submarines before launching Astroforge. The company's raised $13 million, so, you know, real money from real investors. And they're getting ready as we speak for their maiden mission in the next few months, hitching a ride on a rocket um, out to lunar orbit. So lots to talk about. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. And certainly it is just a really interesting example of all of these new companies that have kind of been brought to life by the space revolution that is happening right now, but that I think for most people has kind of passed them by. They're not really aware of what this actually could mean. So without further ado, here is Matt Gulich of Astroforge. Enjoy. Cool. So... Mining asteroids, just like your standard, as is like enterprise SaaS, you've got kind of social media, ad sales, you know, your kind of standard company. This is kind of what you're going for. Yeah, absolutely. We just went into one of the B2B SaaS categories, selected <laughs> it, and uh, found a problem to solve in it. <laughs> so let's start there. So like how and why asteroid mining? There's a couple reasons why. First off, me and my co-founder, Jose, come from aerospace. You know, we spent a number of years myself at a company called Virgin Orbit. Oh, yeah. Jose at SpaceX. Were you out there down there in the desert? No, uh, Virgin was based in Long Beach. Well, actually, we started out in Pasadena above a All clothing right. store and then moved it to Long Beach and we're based out of there. Oh, so I went to the Long Beach facility... That's right, where you're, you had the plane and you're building. The, yeah, 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 I remember now. Because I, I did yeah. a whole thing on Virgin. I went out to the Mojave and saw what they're doing there and then went to Long Beach. Yeah, so I spent about five years there. Jose spent about five years at SpaceX. Oh, okay. Uh, funny, funny enough, we both met each other at Bird Rides, which is the scooter company, which is... I, what you were know. you doing there? So when you build rockets for a while, uh, you go into a manufacturing of rockets. And to be honest, <laughs> uh, once you kind of solved all the engineering challenges, like... It gets a little fucking boring. Yeah. So we wanted to go try something new. Me personally, I wanted to go to what was the fastest growing startup at the time. I think also may have become the fastest declining startup it uh, is. in history as well. It is. You know, but it was a great experience and we learned a lot. And that's where I met Jose. And we really started talking about it's one of those grass is always greener things. You know, you're working at Bird, you're, you're making a lot of progress there. Team was great. But like it was missing something. And for me, it was still missing space. I've mm. always loved space. I've always been kind of a space nerd. And I think Jose was the same way. And we just needed to go do something different for a couple of years and uh, decided, hey, we still love this. Let's go back to it. What can right. we do? And realistically, what is nobody else looking at that we can go push the limits on? And for us, the answer was clear. It was deep space. So that's mm -hmm. what we set out to go build. What is your training or your background? How did you get in space initially? Are you kind of a aeronautical engineer or something like that? Or I'm an electrical engineer. Okay. Um, but I've always had a passion for space from early day as a kid. You know, I tell this story all the time, but my mom recently gave me the the baby box she kept in the garage of all my stuff when I was a kid. And there's a little drawing in there of me from when I was in kindergarten. And it says, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's this obviously amazing picture of a rocket. Mm -hmm. um, and it says, I want to be the guy that builds the rocket. Like, I've always had this passion to go to space. Right, I've always right, right, liked right. building and being an engineer. And it's just kind of the natural progression as you go through it. So that was always your thing. 
What did you do at Virgin? What were you working on specifically? Yeah, so at different phases at Virgin, I mean, when we started off or when I started off at Virgin, to be clear, it was actually Virgin Galactic. Yeah. Virgin Orbit hadn't even formed yet. Right, right. I would say I was in like the, the 20 to 30 employee range at the small desk uh, above the clothing store, and I was simply their first software engineer and the first person working on the navigation filter for what would become Launcher One. I see. From there, obviously, kind of moved up through the ranks, became at one point towards the end, the manager of about seven different teams uh, that had to do with really algorithm development, software, flight termination, testing. All of the, the soft skills at the company at one point were, yeah. were kind of managed by me. I see. And just before we get on to Astroforge, I think it's important because also, you know, space is hard. So by the time you left, what progress had Virgin made? And like, it's not like um, if you're going to be delayed, it's like by how much? Because it gets to how difficult it is to like actually build rockets and get them into space. It's really fucking hard. And I think at Virgin, we had another problem, which was there was people sitting on an airplane that were going to drop this rocket from. Right. So you're essentially carrying this, you know, 55,000 pounds of liquid fuel 100 feet away from two people. And uh, that's right. always a situation that adds even more layers on top of it. I left right before they had the first successful launch. When I left, I felt that everything I had set out to accomplish was done. We were mm. done with software. You know, the GNC was done. Like everything was kind of checked off and there was some operational delays that were causing us to push out the flight. But that's when I decided to leave Virgin and, and go to Bird. So you did Bird for two years. And I think I spoke with uh, Annalisa when she was still there. And it was kind of, I remember seeing Bird. It was like nine months from launch or from founding to unicorn status, which was insane. And then it's like been this like pretty vertiginous drop back to earth where now it's worth something like 20 million. I mean, because that must have been quite the ride. I mean, you were there for two years, but just like, what did you take away from that? It was like, you know, the good, the bad or the ugly. Look, I worked for the vehicle section of Bird, which was kind of in this like little secret Culver City office that nobody was allowed in. I learned a lot. And what I really learned was how fast you could go if you took away all the mm. kind of human worry, all of the aerospace worry, kind of all of that, how fast could you actually operate and what could you do? And the speed that Bird was operating at, especially when it came to building these scooters, even though at the end of the day, to me, like, it's a scooter, who cares? Yeah. But the fact that you went from really pen and paper of these to manufacturing 100,000 of them in eight months really just showed me there's a way to move at a speed that is much faster than I even thought was possible. Mm. And that was really, really enlightening. And I think we take a lot of those lessons learned over to Astroforge. Like yeah. We really take that pure commercial approach and try to apply a little bit of aerospace and the learnings on top of it to lower our risk. But at the same time, speed is what wins in the game of startups. Yeah. And uh, we try to go as fast as possible. And were there any, oh, there but for the grace of God go I, like any le lessons you took from like what didn't work at Bird that you're also, you know, now that you're doing your own thing? At Astroforge, you're like, okay, we have to definitely avoid X. I mean, they're very different businesses, but I imagine there might be some kind of commonalities. They are, and I never want to overreact to one two-year stay at a company, but there is some things we don't do organizationally at Astroforge that are really from Bird. You know, one of them is kind of our PM function doesn't exist here intentionally. Why? Some company just got rid of the product manager function. Airbnb changed it. Right, kind of changed right. their changed definition it, changed to it, it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that you really see how engineering on hardware engineering can clash with kind of the native startup PM function and the speed that they want to operate at and the amount of flexibility there. 
it just doesn't make a lot of sense for a company like Astroforge. Now, to be fair, we're also cheating a little bit in the fact that like we have one product. We know we're very mission-driven to go mine an asteroid. It makes it a little bit easier. But we really don't add in any functions that we don't think get us to that mission faster, more securely, you know, or with less capital. So you're at Bird. You have a Jones to get back into space. How do you end up landing, quote unquote, on asteroid mining? There's really two things that went into this. The first was being, when we talk about our love for space, the way that I met Jose was actually talking to him because I had got a job offer from the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena to go Mm. work on Europa Clipper. And I knew Jose had worked at SpaceX. Actually, the mutual friend that tried to, you know, really pull me to JPL told me about Jose. So I went and found him and I was like, hey, what do you think about this, man? Like, you know, part of me doesn't want to go work for a government organization, but part of me really wants to go work in deep space. And I think me and Jose shared the exact same concerns. We just didn't want to go spend the next 30 years working on one mission that like if at any place it fails, like cool, your whole life's work just blows up. What is Europa Clipper for the non-space nerds among us? It is one of JPL's deep space missions. You know, they do a ton of these. You may have heard of like the Curiosity rovers or the Juno mission that went out to Jupiter. It's one of these interplanetary missions that have Mm. really long time horizons that are really going to push forward science in a number of ways, but take 30, 40 years. I mean, Voyager is still in operation. There's still people that are talking with Voyager and collecting data from it. And that was launched, you know, what, I think 75 or whatever that was. I don't remember the date. A long time ago. So these are are kind of generational missions Mm. that are really cool to be a part of, but they also move at a glacial pace because they don't want to get anything wrong. And and you can understand it when these missions cost a billion and a half dollars, it's going to be a little slower. And so we started talking about like, well, how could you kind of take the risk of bird and apply it to deep space? And does that make any sense? And, and what enables this to happen? And realistically, there's a, there's a number of enabling factors that we can get into that said, hey, this, this might make sense to go do. So is there anything we can do going to deep space? Like, what are you going to do? Like, one of my ideas in the beginning was to uh, sell ads on the spacecraft that we sent out. I love that. And uh, I remember talking to Jose about this and he said- Just like a rocket billboard? Yeah, and he said, yeah, if you do this, like, oh, there's no way in hell I'm joining you. Like, this is the dumbest <laughs> idea I've ever heard. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably correct. So, you know, we really looked around and we realized, you know, as you start to go and, and really understand what this is, it became pretty clear to us, there's a ton of these things called near-Earth asteroids that are out there. We've really discovered about 80% of them in the last six years. You know, over 1.3 really? million of them are on the JPL. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this has gone on with the asteroid redirect mission, a lot of telescopes being put in. We've really discovered a lot of these objects. And- from a monetary perspective, like platinum and the platinum group metals are worth a lot of money. Can we go mine an asteroid? Like, is this even possible to do? And before we even announced the formation of the company, we spent a couple of weeks just with pen and paper, um, really sitting down and being like, hold on, can you actually do this? How would it work? Like, does this make any sense? Does this pass kind of first order physics before we go take a leap and actually give it a shot? We determined it did. And we said, let's go do it. And, you know, the day we started YC is the day we started the company. And we were off to the races. Wow. I have lots of more questions, not least because I used to cover mining. And I've actually been inside a platinum mine in South Africa. So, like, a mile underground, hot as hell. You can, might as well be on another planet. You know, it's extremely dangerous. And it's like, but it also shows you the lengths to which we go to get these precious metals that are vital for kind of modern life. So in that sense, like going the opposite direction, going up instead of down, like that, that doesn't seem that crazy to me. But obviously, you know where the deposit is. 
in South Africa, you drill down and it's there and it's obviously static. Asteroid by its very nature is moving, I imagine moving pretty damn fast. So how do you even attempt this? How is this even possible? Yeah, when we say moving very fast, you know, all, all these things are relatively moving fast, depending on how you kind of look at them. A lot of the asteroids we're looking at, to be clear, we're very focused on what are called M-type or metallic asteroids. So these okay. are the ones that we did a big study on, on average have about 1% platinum group metals by mass. So they're very, very lucrative ore sources. Like these are much, much better than any mine in South Africa. What we do is we take a Falcon 9 to the moon, SpaceX rocket. Yep, yep. We're taking a SpaceX Falcon 9 to, I should say, to lunar orbit. We don't land on the moon. We're going in a lunar orbit. We leave from there. That gives us a whole bunch of extra energy to get outside of Earth's gravity well. Mm -hmm. We leave from there. We go out to the asteroid. We dock with them. You know, these are small bodies, so they don't have a lot of gravity. So we essentially dock with the asteroid. We have a technique and a refinery here that does direct surface refining. So we refine the surface directly from the surface of the asteroid, collect our platinum group metals, and then ship it back to Earth to be sold. It's really that simple to us. It's a very kind of, I think, clean mission that we go after. It's about two-year total timeline that this takes to do. We spend about three months actually refining that regolith into the PGMs on the asteroid. And that's what we're going after. So you take a rocket to lunar orbit, and then from there, from that rocket, your refinery is launched. Yes, our spacecraft has the refinery on board and also its own propulsion system. I see. So we go into lunar orbit, fire our own rockets, right? Much smaller thrusters on the spacecraft yeah. to get us out to the asteroid. And then we dock with it and go from there. And like, as you say, everything's moving really fast in space, but it's all relative. So is it like you use your little rocket to direct yourself toward this asteroid and it's kind of moving relatively slow? It's not like this daredevil thing where you have to try to catch a dart. I would say this. Everything is still going really fast. I don't want to pretend like it's going slow, right? But I think orbital dynamics are very well understood. How to do this is very well understood. And keep in mind, humans have done this before. You know, the Japanese with the Hayabusa 1 and 2 missions have landed on asteroids. OSIRIS-REx, which was a NASA mission, just went out to an asteroid, Bennu, and took a sample from it. I had no idea any of that happened. Yeah, so scientifically, like, we have done this all before. Right. Really what we're saying in Astroforge is, how much does it actually cost if you get rid of all the science stuff on it? Like, We don't care about the science stuff. We want to make money. And if you strip these spacecraft down, make them as light as possible, make them have as much Delta V as possible, and really just focus on bringing back a commodity, does the business case close? That's really how we looked at this problem. So it would take two years for one of these missions because I imagine the asteroids are pretty far away. Or how long are they? They get out there. How long does it take to get out there? This is going to be my non-answer here. It's oh. so highly dependent on what day we leave the Earth. And so like a 24-hour slip could mean this asteroid's going away from us at, you know, whatever distance is. So it is so dependent. I would say on average for the missions we are looking at and our launch windows that make sense, the missions are anywhere from 7 to 10 million miles away from Earth. So there's not like you can't use your like uh, your credit card, you know, your miles to kind of get out there. It's a little too far. No, nobody would take them. Um, it's a little too far. But, you know, it, it also is, it's short enough in kind of galactic scale that yeah. the timelines here are about, you know, anywhere from six months to nine months to get out to the asteroids and anywhere from about nine months to a year to come back. So the scales are very well understood. The timelines aren't that long uh, when we're right. talking about spacecraft missions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so once you land on the asteroid, and are these, again, forgive my ignorance, are these asteroids basically orbiting a body? And that's why it's, you know, you can get back or because if they're just going in one direction, it's going to take a really long time to get back. So most of these are in what's called heliocentric orbit or in orbit around the sun. They're just like our planet Earth. They're just, you know, if you were to trace them on a thing, they'd look identical with a little bit different parameters on them. So essentially the way to think about this is their time period is different. So let's make one up. It takes it two years to orbit instead of one. You could see that. Every ha- you know, every year Earth is on the other side of the sun from it, probably not accessible to us to go mine. But every two years they align and are really close to each other. I see. Awesome time to go mine it. And that's those are the windows we, we target. And then so once you land on the asteroid, what is your refinery? Is it basically your kind of standard mining drill and extraction machine? Not at all. So <laughs> very, very different than how we do earth-based refining. I'm sure you've seen some of this. You've yeah. probably seen slurry pits or yep. leaching techniques. Like there's yep, a yep. lot of high-end techniques that can make this happen. Those are all really good for low concentration ore. Mm. Keep in mind, we're expecting to get about 1% PGMs by mass, which means we can use very, very different techniques. How does that compare to what we have on earth, just so people understand? It's anywhere from about 1,000 to 10,000 times greater than any current mine in existence. Right. So- Really, really lucrative ore sources. But these are essentially solid pieces of metal. I can't figure out how to make a drill that's going to do that. So we do an ablative approach. We use a high-energy laser. We land on the asteroid, essentially break off the regolith, and then it goes into our refining process. That separates out the PGMs from everything else we don't care about. Essentially, all the rest is thrown. PGMs are platinum group metals for people that don't know. Yep. It's the platinum group metal. So these six elements that five of them are worth a ton of money. And then there's this one osmium that's not that lucrative, but we still have to mine it because of how a refinery works. Kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we collect those and bring them back. And how much can you bring back on one refinery? At our current size vehicle with our current selected asteroids, we are going to be limited an upper limit of right around 1200 kilograms permission. Now we'll probably even bring back a little bit of less. It really comes into the sizing of the return heat shield and how big it is. Right. So 1200 kilos, what does that translate into dollars and cents just based on the current prices? So to make my math easier, I always track this at a thousand kilograms. Mm-hmm. At the average of last year's spot price, it's about 72 million permission that we would come back. Now, keep in mind, this is a spot price. This fluctuates. It goes crazy. As of today, it's a little bit higher. Actually, today I should probably update my numbers. But that's around what we're going to bring back. So where have you got to? Because you've you've had a launch recently, right? So we launched our demonstration refinery into low Earth orbit. So this is in orbit around the Earth right now. Now, to do that, we sent up a piece of asteroid with it. Obviously, you can't go to an asteroid in low Earth orbit. So we had to send one up to show we could refine in space. That mission is ongoing and is on track. And then a company called Intuitive Machines bought a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket to go to the moon to land their 
rover um, or their, their lunar lander. We are on Intuitive Machines Launch 2. We have a rideshare slot that will take us into orbit around the moon, and we will leave from there to go out to the asteroid. So we are kind of laser focused as a company on this mission too. And hopefully, in not too much time, we'll be attempting the world's first commercial deep space mission. You know, nobody commercially has sent a mission out to do anything in deep space. These have all been government entities or, mm. to give them credit where it's due, Elon's Tesla. Although, I don't, you know, it wasn't really a mission. No, no. He's a, a one-way mission, as it were. One-way mission. <laughs> you know, I've done a fair amount of space on space over the years in various different ways. But I think a lot of people don't quite realize or it's kind of like, yeah, cool. There's like, you know, Elon's launching rockets. I don't think there's a great appreciation of just what is happening here so i don't know if you could speak to that of just like the cadence of launches that are happening now and it's not just spacex it's other companies because presumably even you know three years ago this was probably not possible for you or at least much less possible danny a year ago this wasn't possible for us right like the the nasa clips missions really opened that up so so everybody understands i think We've kind of got a little bored with space. Yeah. Let's be honest about it. SpaceX launches every other day now and they land them. So everybody's like, okay, cool. We've seen this before. And I think most space launches, to be honest with you, are, are really fucking boring. Like we send these little satellites up to low Earth orbit and they look at the Earth or they send communication down. And like, that's not really exciting to anybody. Let's be honest about it. We've all seen this done before. And there's some very good markets there from a business perspective. And that's all great. But to our joke at the beginning of the of the podcast, right? It's a little bit like B2B SaaS. Like, eh, it's not that exciting. Yeah, I can make a lot of money, but like, who cares? So I am hopeful that a company like mine can really reinvigorate the world on, on what you can do and what you can take on. And, and we have a much bigger mission. We're trying to do things never before done. You know, we hope to get the first high-res images ever of an M-type asteroid. Kind of show the scientific and the commercial community this is doable. And then change the world by taking this this hazardous, dangerous process of mining our earth for resources off world. And I think there's a couple of companies out there that are like mine that are trying to really push the envelope. It's it's really, really hard. There's a high probability of failure. Yeah. But if we can pull it off, like we change the fucking world. Yeah. And I think that will change the view on space. We've had Varda on this podcast. Um, this is probably a year plus pre-launch. When I heard about you guys, they're the other ones, Varda, for those who don't remember they're trying to manufacture drugs in space by taking advantage of zero gravity to kind of create cell structures that are very difficult to do on Earth. Look, the space community is great. I work with a lot of them. They're all awesome people. I don't yeah. mean to bash those companies at all. Yeah. But I think us, Varda, a couple others out there that are just trying for things much, much bigger are kind of the exciting ones, right? And we hope to be on the leading edge of the excitement and kind of getting people excited about space again, like we were in the 60s and 70s, right? I think it was a great time and let's let's bring that back. When we go back to you join Y Combinator, and that's when you launched the company. How did that go and how was the actual fundraising? Because, you know, we have so many founders on this podcast who are like, you know, I had 127 no's and I've got all the emails and I've, you know, this person was super dismissive. And, you know, like people kind of like, uh, it's kind of like basketball players who, remember the order of everybody drafted before them, you know, as the kind of the fuel, like you know, once they've made it or whatever. Just wondering how that experience was for you, because obviously you're, the idea of it on its face is completely insane. But as you described, there's it's grounded in science and physics. But you, when you say asteroid mining, I imagine you've got a lot of sideways looks. For sure. I mean, let's let's be honest about it. A couple of things you're like, 
the most response I got was when I said like, yeah, we're, we're Astroforge, we're an asteroid mining company. People would be like, um, can you repeat what you just said? Like, mm-hmm. I think I misheard you, right? Like it was totally kind of out there and, and not well understood. For us, fundraising went extremely well coming out of YC surprisingly well to anybody I think on the team or was working with. Now we spent a lot of time. We achieved a lot in that 10 weeks of YC. I mean, we hit a ton of milestones booking our first launch, showing we could build a refinery. Like we moved at a lightning pace. I think that showed in our ability to fundraise and it went very well for us. I had a company before that where fundraising was a totally different ball game. And it was much more what you talk about that. We talked to a hundred people and got, you know, 99 no's and one mm. like partial yes. So we definitely went through the ringer of what was bad about it. And I think the best thing for us is that we did that before YC. So we really understood number one, how to be resilient to this and how to do it, but also how to iterate very quickly. Danny, this stuff is is really hard. And one of the things is, is you're not naturally born a fundraiser. You don't go take a class in college that tells you exactly how to do it. So you have to take it as like, here's my real life lesson. Let me go iterate as quick as possible. And that's what we did. And I think to me and Jose's credit and maybe dismay is like, we probably way overdid this. So the way we did demo day at YC was every single call we got, I scheduled for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of that first week. And so the first day I had 15 calls. I took notes from every single call and then Jose, I went home and slept and Jose stayed up all night adding all of the questions we got as backup slides to the deck. And so the next day when I went in, when people would ask those questions again, I'd be like, oh, we've thought about that. Here's the answer to it. Right. And that right away in the first week, now we got like very little sleep that first week. We were all, you know, Jose was staying up all night. I was pitching all day. That made a huge difference in our ability to raise capital and to really close the round and to, and to get at the level we wanted to. And we got into one of those really lucky situations as a fundraising group where we had to turn down quite a bit of capital because we just got way more interest than we were expecting to get. And you, you mentioned the company you did before this one where you had the 99 no's or whatever. What was that? So it was a submarine company. We were building. I'm sorry, what? A submarine? Yes, it was a submarine company. So you're really into doing really hard stuff. I mean, submarines have come to the forefront in the last two weeks in in a very bad way. They have. But yeah, look, Danny, life is short. I don't want to do easy (laughs) shit. Like, that's boring, right? I mean, the reality is, it's like, there's some, you know, I will always say this. Now that we've got some notoriety or building this, I get reached out to by a lot of founders and their question is like, well, you know, how did you become super successful and how do you become super, super wealthy? And I said like, well, neither of those are true, um, number one. And number two, if you want to become super wealthy, like the reality is go start what we call a small business. All the people that live along the ocean here and, you know, in Newport on the Hill have small businesses Mm -hmm. where they make a lot of money. They probably get a lot of work-life balance. And if that's what you're going after, don't go try to start a VC-backed high-risk startup. Like This is not the healthy way to do it. You have to kind of be a little bit crazy to do something like this. And and I think have a really strong passion for what you're doing. Totally. Well, first of all, why were you trying to do a submarine company? (laughs) (laughs) There's a much longer story here. But in short, (laughs) wanted to try hard things. Wanted to try things that you're uncomfortable with, right? Things that you don't expect to do, that you don't have a lot of experience in. But that also means that there's a huge opportunity there because nobody else is doing them. And I mean, whether it's going deep in the ocean or whether it's going into deep space, it's really the same thing. I will just say this, when it comes to deep space, I have a lot more inherited experience there from working at Virgin and Jose for SpaceX than there is of going to the bottom of the ocean. And that became evidently clear very quickly. And so, you know, when you realize that and that dawns on you, like you have two options as a human, you can sit there and like let your company go on forever, kind of putting along, you know, doing whatever. Or you can just say, cool, I'm not into this. Let me go change it. That's what I did. So did you actually build a sub or was it in the design phase or how far along did you get on that? 
the last thing. We built a couple little subs that were able to go out, were able to go underwater. Like it, it was, it was a lot of fun. It lasted about a, a year and a half, I think, for us. Mm-hmm. And then we um, changed what we were doing and went after asteroid mining, as one does. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand, also necessarily about fundraising, because. If you step back and be like, okay, I worked at a space company, then I was at a scooter company, then I tried to do submarines, and now I'm going to do asteroids. Someone might look at it like, that's like a totally schizophrenic path. But for investors, it's like, you know, obviously you have a certain type of temperament and to keep trying this stuff and you've had some success. And so it's like, clearly they saw something or like, okay, let's actually give this dude some money and see what he can do with it. Yeah, I think life is all about trying things and, you know, either realizing they're not correct or if they are correct, doubling down on them. And uh, that's what I've kind of done throughout my whole career. But I also think it's it's really important for a founder to be well-rounded. And you see this all the time where you'll see a founder come out of a Lockheed Martin or a Boeing, not to overgeneralize here, but I've, I've witnessed this a couple of times. And they say like, well, if you want to do X, you have to follow X, Y, and Z. And it's like, if I would have just came out of Virgin and started this company, I would have a very different opinion than of what I have on it now with the experience at Bird and with the experience doing it, you know, once before as a company. And that kind of experience gives you a huge advantage because you've seen other sides of the coin. You've seen other ways things can be done. And you can kind of question all of your knowledge and take what you feel is value added and throw away what you think is not. Do you come from an entrepreneurial family? Absolutely not. I'm so broken when it comes to my family. You hear this all the time, like people come, you know, oh, my dad was an entrepreneur and all this. No, my whole family is school teachers. I'm the only non-school teacher in my family. They are all pretty much have taken the safest path in life you can. I mean, to their credit, like it makes them happy. Totally. Good for them. I can't do that at all. I would hate my life if I was a school teacher. That's not my type of personality. And so, yeah, I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs at all. How are your parents about, yeah, yeah, okay, now I'm going to mine asteroids, mom and dad. They've been great on the outside at supporting me. They support me great to my face. I have no idea what they say <laughs> when they're sitting on the couch alone. They're probably like, where, where did we go wrong? Like, let's retrace our parenting from the early days. Like, what happened here? What is broken? You know, the other thing here, Danny, is like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs actually don't, even though it's perceived, like, I don't come from a wealthy family either. There's never been that goal of like, oh, if we fail here, I don't have some cushion, which to me, makes this a lot more fun. Like, it wouldn't be as fun if you failed to know, like, oh, I just go live in my parents' million-dollar mansion. Like, yeah, that's yeah. not as cool. Yeah. So it is very much about taking risk. And, and essentially, in a way, it, it's like a massive poker game where all your chips are on the table at all times. And, like, sometimes you're bluffing and sometimes you got a great hand and you just got to figure out the right play. Right, right, right. So right now, as we speak, you have your first, what would you call it, like a pilot refinery in orbit? Yeah, our demonstration refinery in orbit. Demonstration. So theoretically, when does that come back down to Earth? And what is keeping you up at night in terms of like what could go wrong or kind of what are the proof points that you need to kind of get ready for the next launch? When will it come back down to Earth? In two years when it burns up in the atmosphere. So we have a system called XRF on there, which you may have heard of from the mining industry, but we will detect the, the refinery via a secondary measurement. So we'll use XRF to show that we were able to get the platinum group metals out of that sample and not the iron and other contaminants. I see. That's how we'll verify it in space as an experiment. So you're not bringing this one back down? No, no. This one doesn't return to Earth. It's just going to burn up. Um, On that mission, what keeps me up at night is nothing. That's the honest truth. Not that I don't care about it. The real goal of that mission to me was, can we build a refinery that can refine an asteroid? And can my team build a spacecraft? 
when you bring on a new team, especially a team full of physicists and people that have material science and mining, they've never built a spacecraft before. Can we come together and go do that and go through the testing and get on the rocket? Like we've accomplished all of that, in my opinion. So this last phase of like showing it can refine in space, we've already demonstrated a lot of that in the office, Danny. And there's, you know, the only thing is zero gravity, which we don't think affects it at all. And we're still on path to go show it working. So for me, I sleep well with that mission. Right, mission right, number right. two scares the shit out of me, as I think it should. Like, talking to this thing is just different. You have to use different ground stations, different networks, different radios. How do you navigate it in deep space? How do you worry about, you know, there's mm. so many things that can go wrong on one of these missions. And the cost to go attempt these missions really becomes higher and higher and higher as you buy high-energy launches. You know, we're going to the moon. Let's be honest, the moon's a lot more expensive than going to low-Earth orbit. So there's just a lot more riding on this mission, too, coming up. That's where I'm focusing on my energy. How much more does it cost? Because I know like low, low Earth orbit's like going to 7-Eleven at the moment. The difference, um, and I can't give direct numbers yeah, because yeah. we're under NDA with our contracts, but I will say on average, it's about 10 to 20x the cost of, of what we spent on mission one to go do mission two. So if you raise $13 million, this is, to your poker analogy, pushing your chips into the table here. Pushing your chips all in and saying like, well, let's see if I got the best hand. That's exactly what we're doing, right? And, and you know, sometimes someone beats you with, with you know, the nuts. And uh, hopefully in this case, we win. We'll see what happens. But right. yeah, that, that's that's the risk you take in life and the gamble you have to take on, on big audacious companies like this. And when does that upcoming launch, theoretically, when does that happen-ish? So the launch window opens at the end of October and goes through December. It is on Intuitive Machines Launch 2, so we are not the primary customer, so we don't actually control the launch date. We are rideshare, which means we get it a lot cheaper, but it also means we're not in the driver's seat, which right. really sucks, but it's part of how it works. Fascinating. Have you talked to any of the mining companies? Do they know you exist? Do they kind of laugh at you in a dismissive way? Like, Has there been any interaction there? We've talked to a couple of the, the larger mining companies. So I'll say this. When it comes to larger mining companies, I don't think they, they truly understand that we will eradicate them as a business if we're successful because they have such a firm foothold and have had no competition. It's Look at it this way. It's like what Tesla did to the auto industries you know, 20 years ago. Like Ford was like, whatever, who cares about this little EV company? Like They're not going to do anything. And then it turns out, like, well, they almost eradicated that entire company. I think you're seeing the same thing in the mining right now. And what that means, Danny, is we have a lot to prove as a company to show we can do it. Now, that being said, Final refineries have been a totally different thing. They want to talk to us. They all want to sign contracts with us and have different agreements in place and mm. essentially hedge their bets on if we're successful. Like they don't care where the ore comes from. They care how they can make money off it. And so that's a very different conversation. And those, that 1,200 or 1,000 kilos, how does that compare to like the output of like, I don't know, a reasonable size or a big size platinum mine just to kind of so people can understand? Because you talked about the the difference in concentration, which is vast, but as I saw up close, like everything involved with pulling the stuff out of the ground, what is the output of all of that? It's been really hard for me to find concrete data on this per mine. So what I can say is I can find a little bit of more concrete data, at least what I believe to be more concrete data on global platinum PGM usage, which to keep it in the form of dollars instead of ounces, about $60 billion of it was consumed last year in, in, in use cases for manufacturing. So that's kind of where it all come from. Now, a part of that is coming from recycling, and a part of that is coming from fresh out of mines, right? right. Keep in mind, if we're talking $72 million, like we're a very, very small percentage of that, even at a high cadence of missions, which partially is intentional, Danny. $60 billion isn't worth $60 billion of platinum if we bring back $60 billion in one year. 
right? There, there's a thing called supply and demand curves mm -hmm. here, and this matters, and the elasticity of those commodities matter a lot, and we study this very in-depth. We believe we have a fairly high limit on elasticity of commodities, so we think we have a pretty wide gap there we can fulfill. It's multiple missions for us, and that's, that's partial why the spacecrafts are sized the way they're sized and why they bring back the amount they bring back. A kind of Goldilocks zone, theoretically. Yep. Awesome. Well, look, I know we're uh, running short on time, but I find it totally fascinating and I hope you know your rocket doesn't blow up you and me both <laughs> and that is all the time we have I want to thank Matt I want to thank you all for the ratings and the reviews and if you haven't done one yet please take a moment and do that for me I'd appreciate it that is it for me I am writing this week I'll probably be writing about Astroforge in the paper so keep an eye out for that or online at thetimes.co.uk or on Twitter at Danny Fortson, email danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.